It's a, a blessing to be here. It's always a blessing to be here, to be with all of you, to see all your faces, to worship with all of you. And so I'm just grateful that you're here. Um, this morning, if you are visiting with us for the first time, uh, then you may not know where we are, but we are in week four, our final week of our Is God Really There sermon series, uh, which has been a series that's, that's really been designed to, to help equip you to make disciples. Because as we've, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, like most people who don't follow Jesus with their lives don't do so for personal reasons. It's personal usually. In other words, it usually has nothing to do with the fact that there's insufficient evidence for God being real or that God doesn't make sense or any of those things. It's usually for personal reasons. But we also have to recognize and acknowledge that for some people it is. For some people they say, hey, I can't, I can't make sense of God being there. there. There isn't enough evidence for me to believe. And so we have to be prepared. We have to know how to have difficult conversations. We, know how, we have to know how to address questions and concerns that come up in people's faith. And so in a city like San Francisco, these kinds of conversations are, are not uh, rare. They're, they're very normal kinds of conversations to have. It's very normal to encounter people who, who live in our community um, and, and don't have faith in God. It would be normal to have these conversations with people in this community. And so, you know, we're, we're called... To, to act like Jesus called. We're, we're called to engage people in the way that Jesus engaged people. And that means that sometimes we have, to, we have to meet people at the well. We have to meet people at the well. We have to engage them where they are in their life. And so that's what Jesus modeled for us as he encountered the woman at the well. And, and the point we're trying to make is that, that hope is never found in our circumstances or in our marriages or in our families or in our careers. Like we come in and we talk about hope and that hope is found only in Jesus. That Jesus models for us what it's like to meet someone at the well and then to point them to a hope that is found only in him, that is found only in the cross, that is found only in the mercy of God. And so in John chapter 4, you know the story well. Jesus looks at a woman, a woman who's thirsty for water, and he offers to quench her thirst in a way that she would never, ever thirst again. He offered her himself. And he told her in that moment, in a very metaphoric sense, that he would become a spring of water in her that would well up to eternal life. That when we encounter people with difficult questions about God, we aren't encountering someone that needs to be defeated. Like that's what apologetics was to me when I, when I first got interested in it. I wanted to be able to have an argument and win an argument. I wanted to win the debate. I wanted to defeat you. And so thankfully, the Holy Spirit came in and said, that's, that's really the wrong heart to have, Josh. That's a heart that's grounded in pride. That's a heart that's grounded in arrogance. You need to change your heart, and I did. But these, these past three weeks have been about equipping us. We've been asking the question, is God really there? And so week after week after week, we've answered in the affirmative, yes, he is. And here's three different ways that we can be confident in that. The first way we talked about is that God is the first cause of all creation. We call that the cosmological argument for God. The second way is that creation is a complex system. And complex systems reveal creators. They don't re reveal random chance. And number three, we talked about the fact that if, if God is possible, and most of us would agree that God is at least possible, then logic would tell us that God must exist. Now, there's a few different steps there that I'm leaving out in the process. And so if you want to hear that, go back online and listen to last week's message. But we call that the ontological argument for God. 
And so when we explore these ideas, the goal is never to win the debate insofar as winning strokes our own ego. The goal is winning the debate so that we win people to Christ. That is what the goal is all about. It's about removing barriers to faith in him so that like the woman at the well that Jesus encounters, we can point people to the kind of water that will forever quench their thirst for meaning and for purpose. And so that's why we ask these questions. That's why we do it. That's why we provide relevant answers. Because it's, it's not enough for us to simply conclude that, that since I've always had faith or since I've always believed, like these messages don't apply to me. They do. They do apply to you. They, they, they do because they encourage us to meet other people that we encounter at the well in their lives and point them toward a hope and purpose that's found only in the person of Jesus. Can we get an amen, church? Amen. The cliche question that everyone is supposed to be asking is what is the meaning of life? You've heard people ask that question before. It's, it's, it's become so common, it almost doesn't mean anything to us. But God has put that question on our hearts and he's given us a curiosity to search. And so Jesus' life and his ministry is one story after another, after another, after another of giving people meaning and purpose in their lives. And so as we conclude this series, what I want to do is I want to open with a word of prayer. And I just want to pray over us because I want to pray that, that we don't simply consume this information and we sort of put it as a feather in our cap, as, as one more piece of knowledge that we'll never, ever use. I want us to use this in a way that, that is God-honoring. And so I want to pray that God's Spirit would give you a purpose and opportunity to encounter other people at the well in their lives, to meet them where they are, and to point them toward hope. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, one of the things that we like to do is we like to approach the throne of God with reverence. And so I, I usually encourage everyone to assume a posture of reverence before the King, before the Almighty, before the God of the universe. And so, you know, sitting here is comfortable, it's nice, but if you're able, I invite you to stand. I invite you to raise hands. I invite you to get down on your knees on the floor before a holy God. But let's do that as we go to God in a word of prayer this morning. <clears throat> God, we, we come here this morning and we sing these songs not because it's just something that we do week in and week out. We come here this morning and we sit in these chairs not because it's something that we just do week in and week out. Father, we, we come here because you are worthy. We come here because you deserve our worship and you deserve our honor and our praise. Amen. And so, Father, this morning as we, we spend a little bit more time looking at, at the reasons why we can have confidence that you are here. Father, it's just one more way for us to recognize and admit that you are worthy. Amen. You are worthy. You are holy, holy, holy. And Father, we want to give you all glory and all honor. All of that belongs to you, Father. Take away anything in our hearts that is inclined to take some of that glory for ourselves, Father. It's so easy to fall victim to that. It's so easy to fall into that trap where we start thinking any of this has something to do with, with me or with you or with anyone. Father, we want all this to be about you, God. 
but we want all of this to be about you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, really assume a posture of worship in the way that we listen, in the way that we learn, in the way that we engage our minds, uh, in the way that we engage our hearts, so that we actually take this information and not just, not just store it and stuff it away on some hard drive, never be looked at again, but, Father, that we would go into our community be passionate about sharing people, sharing with people the hope that is found only in Christ. And I pray that this morning for us. I pray that we would internalize this in a powerful way. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys can be seated. So th this morning's topic, as we conclude this series, is, is probably the simplest of the four that we've talked about. It's, it's the simplest to explain, and I think the cool thing about it is it's probably the, the most powerful or significant of the four, at least for me personally. Like I think this is the one that is often the most compelling when you're talking to someone who is skeptical, when you talk to someone who doubts, when you talk to someone who just really isn't sure, like if there's a God up there, this is the one that I think grabs most people's attention. It's the most compelling. And so as we get started this morning, I want to invite you to do this. I want everyone in this room to close your eyes for just a moment. Close your eyes, and I want to ask you to think back as far as you can in your life, and then try to remember the very first thing that you did that you knew was wrong for you to do. The first time you felt guilt, or the first time you felt shame, or the first time you felt remorse. And when you have that memory, go ahead and open your eyes. I'm going to pause just for a moment for you to think about those things. The first time that you felt shame, or guilt, or remorse for something. You know, when I answered that question for myself, two memories came to mind. Uh, the first one goes back to when I was in preschool. If you guys remember the chain La Petite Academy, I went to a La Petite Academy when I was in preschool. And uh, I remember we, we finally got our hands on some real Legos. Because you, like, you know when you're in preschool and you're like three, everything are those giant Duplo blocks and they're the worst. Like no one wants to play with those. But we finally got our hands on some real, some real Legos. And I found myself just enamored with this little Lego man and this little Lego motorcycle. I thought they were the coolest things ever, and so I helped myself to them. And I slipped it quietly in my pocket, and I took it home, and uh, I, I enjoyed some extended playtime. And so once I was at home, I, I found myself, I think I was motoring around my fireplace, if I remember correctly, and then I suddenly heard those dreaded words from one of my parents. Josh, where did you get that? And I kind of paused, like, uh... And what I didn't realize is that my parents had a really strong handle on my toy inventory. They, they paid much more attention than I ever really thought they did. And so, you know, I had to, to take it back the next day and I had to look someone in the eye and confess, like I had taken this, these Legos, I'm really, really sorry. And I, I was embarrassed about that. But the more significant memory for me came a short time later. I had recently gotten my first pair of cowboy boots, you know, the, the really pointy kind that are, that are hard on the, the toe, and uh, I was showing them off, I was enjoying them. So one day I'm over at my family friend's house, it was like a, our whole family was friends, our moms were best friends in high school, and her son Brian was like two months younger than me, we were best friends growing up, and we did what a lot of best friends do when you're young, like you fight, right? You have confrontation, you fight, and so normally when a couple of five-year-olds fight, at least back then, you involve your fists. Um, but this time, something came over me, and I remembered my my secret weapon that was attached to my feet. Um, I had these pointy-toed cowboy boots. And so that day, while Brian did something that I, I thought was completely unreasonable or whatever it was, it irritated me, I, uh, I resorted to a new tactic. I pulled my foot back and I kicked him square in the teeth 
I busted his lip open, blood everywhere. He starts bawling. His mom, of course, runs in trying to check on her son to see if he's okay. And like I knew right in that, that moment, I had crossed the line of what was reasonable and what was unreasonable in that moment. I just kicked a kid in the teeth with my cowboy boots, and that wasn't good. And so as his mom came running in, I knew, like, I have to get out of here. And so I ran. I ran out of the kitchen. I ran through the living room. I ran upstairs. I ran into his bedroom, his bedroom. I ran under his bed, and I hid because we were at his house. And I, I was just trying to get away. I was trying to escape in some way, shape, or form. Um, it didn't work. You know, within a few moments, I felt this hand grab my ankle and slide me out from underneath the bed. And uh, I knew that I was in for it. Um, as you may have guessed, I did survive that incident, which is a, a good thing. But I knew that what I had done was wrong. It was, I, I knew that, right? I knew what I had done was wrong. But here's the, the question I want you to consider this morning. Why was it wrong? Why was it wrong? Think about that. Like, where did that notion come from for me? And if your next thought is some version of, well, because it was wrong, then you just illustrated my point. And I'll, I'll try to explain what I mean. What I mean is this, you know, we, we live in San Francisco, right? We live in a city where whether you agree with its values or not has, culturally speaking, a very strong sense of right and wrong, right? And there are things that San Francisco considers to be very right, and there are things that San Francisco considers to be very wrong. Case in point, at my last church in Redwood City, one of the ministries that we used to support and, and do some mission work with was a, a ministry called uh, Support Circle. Before that, it was called uh, First Resort or Third Box. They changed the name a lot, but most recently it's Support Circle. And if you don't know what Support Circle is, it's a, a faith-based pregnancy clinic with offices in San Francisco, with, in Oakland, and in Redwood City. And so they work with, with both men and women to try to help pregnant women make informed decisions about their pregnancies. And so they You've heard of, of ministries like this, but they offer free ultrasounds and medical care and free counseling for both women and, and couples who are considering an abortion and for those who have even gone through and had an abortion, as well as a bunch of other services. And so, you know, I, I know their CEO, I know some of their board members, um, and so despite the stigma that sometimes comes with ministries like theirs, I've seen their heart, and I've seen their heart for prayer, and I've seen their heart for helping women in all stages of pre pregnancy and post-pregnancy, like they have a great heart for serving Christ in their space. And yet, a couple of years ago, the city of San Francisco, uh, specifically San Francisco, dragged them through the mud and nearly to the U.S. Supreme Court, claiming that they couldn't even advertise their services within city limits because they did not directly offer abortion services and therefore could not be technically deemed a pregnancy clinic. And so their opponents had armies of volunteers who would go online and would smear them in online reviews. They would, would call and threaten and harass their clinics. Uh, they had a really painful season a couple of years ago. And, and the point of me bringing all this up is not to advocate for their services or anything like that, but to illustrate just one example among a myriad of examples that all of us have undoubtedly seen where San Francisco chooses to take a stand on what they deem is right and on what they deem is wrong. In this case, they deemed support circle wrong. Uh, in 1989, San Francisco also uh, made themselves a sanctuary city for those who are undocumented. Uh, San Francisco is the, the uh, symbolic leader for LGBTQ rights 
in the United States and maybe the entire world. Uh, <clears throat> through all of that, San Francisco has very much demonstrated that they want to be known as a city who has a heart for human rights, who has a heart for the oppressed. And I, I truly love that about our city. I love that we have a heart for people and we want to, to love on people. I love that a city would want to look out for oppressed people because the Jesus that I read about in the Bible is the kind of guy who looks out for oppressed people. God is the kind of God who looks out for oppressed people. But what's interesting about San Francisco is that despite our heart for mercy and despite our heart for justice and for human rights, our city has also historically tried to distance itself from any connection or relationship with religion or with God. And so our city has, has often treated faith as an enemy that needs to be eradicated rather than a value to be embraced or to be celebrated. And I just want to say, like, I, I get it. I, I get that people of faith have not always reflected the grace and the mercy of Jesus, despite bearing his identity as Christian. I get that Christians have made mistakes. I get that Christians have been hypocrites at times. I get why there's distrust there. Even if I feel like for non-Christians, like the hatred and the vitriol that's there is often misplaced. But I want you to stop and think about the conundrum that San Francisco creates for itself with its values. Like if you ever stop to consider how odd it is for a place or a value to be devoid of God and proclaimers of right and wrong in the same breath. Have you ever stopped to consider how odd that is? Like who determines if something is right or if something is wrong? And I want to see if I can illustrate. Raise your hand if you have ever seen a straight line few of us have not. <clears throat> How do you know that it's a straight line and not just a line? Have you ever thought about that? Because whether you realize it or not, somewhere along the way, somebody found a way to demonstrate to you what a straight line actually is and the difference between a straight line and a crooked line or a curved line. Like there, there had to be a standard that was set that demonstrated that one kind of line was straight while another kind of line was not. You know, a line's straightness is not subjective in the sense that you say a line is straight and I say a line is curved, right? Like a straight line is objectively straight. Do we all agree with that? Like its very definition defines what it is. It is a straight line. And so the, the, there's a standard for what straight is. And the same is true for, for lots of things in our world when you really think about it. I remember reading in my physics textbook uh, back when I was in college. And uh, what I learned, as you kind of look at this picture of a metal cylinder, the same thing was in my, my textbook. What, what I learned while reading that is that near Paris, there is this, this place called the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. And inside that place is a small platinum iridium cylinder that is one kilogram. One kilogram. And I don't mean that it's equal to one kilogram. What I mean is that it is, this is the very definition of one kilogram, the cylinder that you see right here. Like when we say that something weighs 250 kilograms, what we're saying, whether you realize it or not, is that it weighs 250 of these. This, this is the standard for, for what a kilogram is. It sets the standard for how we measure it throughout the world. 
And I, I suppose, although I don't know if, the, if it's true or not, but this is probably also the standard where we derive a gram from and a milligram and, and so many other uh, units throughout our metric system. But, but up until I read that, I had never really stopped to consider that there had to be something in our world that set the standard by which all other things were measured, like something that was objectively true, regardless of whether I wanted it to be true or not. I can say something's a kilogram, but this is objectively true. This is a kilogram. And so that would be true of, of any unit of measurement, right? Ur urban legend says that a, a foot was based on the length of what? The, the king's foot, right? And an inch would be one-twelfth of that, and a yard would be three of that, and a mile would be 5,280 of that. Uh, we, we measure horses by what? Hands, right? So somewhere along the way, we, we set a standard for what that was. It was the, the distance from the pinky to the thumb, but there probably had to be like one hand that was a standard above all other hands, because if you look at my hand, I probably have bigger hands than anyone in this room. I don't know why. God gave me weird hands. <clears throat> Similarly, the Bible uses the term cubit. Anyone know what a cubit is? Cubit's the distance between the tip of the middle finger and the elbow. And, and throughout Scripture, you're going to see the cubit referenced when, when the Bible gives dimensions of various things. But somewhere along the way, there was a standard for what a cubit was. And so hopefully you're, you're beginning to understand what I'm getting at here. But the, the reason that you can define anything as true is that there needs to be a standard, an objective standard that affirms or denies that something is true. And so when we, we call something right, or if we call something wrong, we believe those statements to be true statements, right? And so you go back 1941 to 1945, the, the Nazi party in Germany systematically rounds up six million Jewish men, women, and children, and has them killed in the Holocaust, and we call that wrong. And Bill Gates, right now is giving away billions of dollars to try to help eradicate disease and to, to feed, uh, to solve hunger problems and all kinds of stuff with this philanthropy and we call that good. When someone walks into a public space and opens fire and kills dozens of people, we call that wrong. And when someone walks into a public space and feeds a group of homeless people, we call that good. When someone locks a puppy in a car, we call that wrong. And when someone walks into a shelter and adopts a puppy, we call that good. And so there's, there's basically universal agreement that each of those statements is true. The wrong things are truly wrong things. And the good things are truly good things. And we believe that is true. But where does that sense of rightness and wrongness come from? And so this is what has come to be known as the moral argument for God. The moral argument for the existence of God. And I believe this is the most compelling argument for the existence of God that we're going to cover. And so what the moral argument begins to say is that much like the kilogram, or the inch, or the mile, or the straight line, there has to be something that is objectively, or that we can say objectively, uh, makes something either good or bad, moral or immoral, right or wrong, and what the argument recognizes is that when we try to do that apart from God, we have some really, really big issues. So like when we appeal to something like scientific naturalism, for instance, or the belief that there is no supernatural, that there is no God, but only natural properties and only natural causes, like we run into an issue. 
because naturalists would essentially say that life evolved on its own and that life has evolved from like a primordial soup of some kind where first there were single cell organisms that gave way to multi-cell organisms of increasing complexity until we got to where we are today. And for years we've been expanding on that theory, talking about things like Darwinian evolution um, or this notion of survival of the fittest. And so it's this belief that, that evolution naturally selects superior creatures and then eradicates inferior creatures because the weakest creatures are killed and the fittest creatures do the killing or they survive. And yet that process of killing and being killed is obviously not consistent with a worldview in which we call killing bad or wrong and benevolence or helping those in need good. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that naturalism as we know it today, what it should be doing is reinforcing the notion that killing is good and the right thing to do to survive. And yet morality tells us that the exact opposite of, is true. Like we look at the Holocaust and we look at it in horror, but why? Why? You know, as Tim Keller points out, one of the, the prevailing theories here is that along the way, we as people sort of evolved and, and developed these altruistic genes, right? We, we developed these genes that, that tell us that, you know, being unselfish and, and being cooperative uh, actually helps us survive in greater numbers. And so we, we develop these genes and then we, we pass those on to, to subsequent generations. And, and, uh, and so we've, we've learned to be good to one another throughout that process. But, but as he also points out, like that only works for a specific group of people. Like it should be totally normal. It should be totally acceptable to be hostile or to destroy other people groups that are not our own if such were the case. And yet it's not okay. You know, if we see a stranger drowning, we dive in and save them, right? We don't celebrate that our competition has just been eradicated. Do you understand what I'm saying? We celebrate being kind and benevolent to one another. And so lots of other issues emerge. And we don't have time to get sufficiently into to what, what all of them are, such as like, why people do good things when nobody else is paying attention or, or would ever know about them and so on. But the point of, in all of this is that there is no discernible or, or defensible reason that we can point to that demonstrates why there should be a sense of morality, why there should be a sense of right or wrong or any truth at all um, apart from something that sets a standard for rightness or wrongness. And we call this a moral law giver. If there's going to be a moral law, there has to be someone who gives the moral law. Now, sometimes there's an objection. Sometimes people try to say, okay, but I don't think that there is a moral law. I don't think that there is a sense of right or wrong. And Robbie Zacharias, I think, illustrates this beautifully. He tells a story often when he's speaking. And I'm sharing this story from memory because I couldn't find it in print form, but I've heard him tell it a lot of times. He, says, I was, he tells a story about being at a college campus or something like that. And he was talking about objective moral truth. And, and he said someone stood up and interrupted him and basically said, look, there is no such thing as objective moral laws. There is no such thing as objective senses of right and wrong. And Robbie said, you don't really believe that. He said, no, I do. I do believe that. 
He said, no, you don't. He said, okay, so suppose somebody were to go and, and slaughter a bunch of infants right now. Do you mean to tell me that that wouldn't be objectively wrong? And the guy paused, thought about it for a moment, and he came back and he said this. He said, I would not like it, but I could not say that it was wrong. I would not like it, but I could not say that it was wrong. And I, and I bring that up just to say, like, do you see the outrageous lengths that we will go to to try to escape the notion that there is someone or something that instills in us a sense of right and wrong. We will go to preposterous lengths that we will even say things like this. Our city and our culture sometimes is, is the worst of offenders at trying to designate that certain things are right and other things are wrong, at the same time also asserting that there is no standard for which to objectively call anything right or wrong. He's saying there, there is no God. And so Tim Keller addresses the problem with this in his book. And I'm going to read a couple of long quotes. He says, If you believe human rights are a reality, then it makes much more sense that God exists than that he does not. If you insist on a secular view of the world and yet you continue to pronounce some things right and some things wrong, then I hope you see the deep disharmony between the world your intellect has devised and the real world and God that your heart knows exists. And so this leads us to a crucial question. If a premise, such as there is no God, leads to a conclusion that you know is not true, such as napalming babies is culturally relative, then why not change the premise? And so he continues. He says, we all live as if it is better to seek peace instead of war, as if it is better to tell the truth instead of lying, to care and nurture rather than to destroy. We believe that these choices are not pointless, that it matters which way we choose to live. And yet he says, if the cosmic bench is truly empty, then who says that one choice is better than the others? We can argue about it, but it's just pointless arguing. It's endless litigation. He says, if the bench is truly empty, then the whole span of human civilization, and we can advance the slide here, then the whole span of human civilization, even if it lasts a few million years, will be just an infinitesimally brief spark in relation to the ocean of dead time that preceded it and will follow it. There will be no one around to remember any of it. Whether we are loving or cruel in the end would make no difference at all. And this quote kind of reminds me of a thought. A few years ago, I'd gone to the movie theaters, uh, one of the new Star Trek movies had come out, and I was watching it, and there was obviously this big battle at the end. You guys have seen all these Star Trek movies, right? There's all these different spaceships. I forget which race in the Star Trek universe was fighting who, but the, you know, the Enterprise or whatever was, was in there. And there's, there's awe-inspiring explosions and huge spaceships, and this is grand, right? You, you get the sense that this is, this is going to change the course of, of the history of the universe, that the, the, the fate of the universe was being decided in this moment. Like, would good prevail or would evil prevail? And then in that moment, 
I got to kind of thinking about something. I said, you know, the, the universe is really, really big. Like, it's really, really vast. And so I started imagining what would happen if I took this, this war that was happening in some part of space right now, and I, I zoomed out a thousand miles. And then I sort of zoomed out a million miles. Like, what would I begin to see? And the reality is that the, the further I go back, the less significant this war truly is in this movie. Like, it wouldn't even measure on the Richter scale of significance in the grand scheme of space. Think about how much you care about someone in, in Siberia shooting a BB gun right now. Like, that's about how significant this war would have been in Star Trek and the vastness of space. It, it just, like, didn't matter in the slightest. Like, it was meaningless. And that's what Keller is concluding about the importance of morality apart from God. He's saying that in the grand scheme of the vastness of eternity, what is the Holocaust? He's saying it's, it's, it's nothing. It makes no difference at all apart from God. There's just all this time before it and there's all this time after it. But nobody believes that. We sit in this room and we know the Holocaust matters. We believe it matters. We look at Hitler. We look at Stalin. We look at some of the Chinese dynasties and the evils that have been committed there. And in our hearts, we know that it matters. It's not just wrong because it makes us feel yucky. It's wrong because it's wrong. It's wrong because there's a moral lawgiver who instills in us that it's wrong. We know that's wrong. We don't have to be told. Consider how natural it is for a newborn horse to stand or for a bird to fly, or for an infant to nurse. Like we see indisputable evidence that God has pre-programmed into creation an instinct that is never learned. It is just known. And so our sense of right and wrong, by and large, is instinctual to us. Like the basics of it, we don't need to be taught. It's something that we know apart from ourselves. I didn't need to be told that kicking my friend in the teeth was a bad idea. Like I knew that. And my actions spoke louder than my words. Because what did I do? I ran and I hid. That sounds an awful lot like what Adam and Eve did, right? What did Adam and Eve do when they were given one rule in the garden not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They violated that rule. What did they do? They covered themselves and they, they hid, just like I did. They went and got underneath the bed. What did God say to them? He said, who told you that you were naked? Like, where did that notion even come from? Where did you get that idea? When we violate what we know is right, when we commit what is wrong, the human reaction is always to do one of two things. We either hide from it or we deny it. We hide from it or we deny it. Every single one of us in this room has hidden from something they've done or they've denied something that they've done because they didn't want to be confronted with their wrongness. That comes from somewhere. That doesn't just show up. That comes from somewhere. And when we try to stay straight-faced while on one side saying out of our, at one side of our mouth that there is no such thing as God and on the other side saying there is no such thing as right or there is such a thing as right and wrong, like those two things don't, don't jive. It doesn't work. It's usually, if we're saying those things, it's usually that we're hiding from something. It's usually that we're denying something. And we're hiding from who? Oftentimes we're hiding from God. Oftentimes we're denying God. But that doesn't make God any less real. It makes us less honest. It makes us less accountable. And frankly, if we're being, if we're being honest, it makes us less alive. You know, the, the, the Bible hints at something spectacular about the unity between God and between man. 
and how we know and differentiate right from wrong. The prophet Jeremiah writes about it in Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there. Uh, The the writer of Hebrews picks up on it and, and says the same words. But he says this, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what God said to Israel. And then through Paul, through the Apostle Paul, in the same way to the, to the church in Rome, he writes, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their what? On their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times defending them. What I want you to see here, church, is that the Bible depicts a creator God who knit humans together in their mother's wombs. It depicts a God who fearfully and wonderfully made each and every one of us in his image, and it reminds us over and over and over again that the only reason that we speak of anything as good or of anything as bad, of anything as just or anything as unjust, anything humane or anything evil is because God wrote that onto our hearts. From the very beginning, God put that on our hearts. He created us and he instilled in us his own moral values. They are part of who we are. And so when San Francisco cries out for human rights, And when we try to care for the poor and the needy among us, we need to recognize that that urging does not come from within ourselves. It is ordained by God. We are reflecting his values while trying to deny his existence in the same time. And it does not work. Guys, the greatest reminder we have for how we can know that God is there is embedded in the satisfaction you feel when you see a straight line or a perfect circle or when you see something objectively good about the companionship of a dog. Like God sets a standard for how we live. He is the standard by which we measure anything. And he is the standard for what is good and what is not in this world. And so when we sit back and we ask ourselves, is God really there? The question you need to ask yourself or a friend that you may be talking to is this. Do you believe there is such a thing as good or such a thing as evil? Let me ask you that, church. Do you believe there is such a thing as good or such a thing as evil? Yes. And so when you talk to someone and they answer that question, if the answer to that question is yes, and it should be, then where we find ourselves is that we're thrust immediately and suddenly into the reality that there exists someone who places the understanding of good and evil on our hearts. You know, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humans have understood good and evil, those concepts from the very beginning of time. We've been trying to work through the tension between those two things. And the beautiful, beautiful part of that story of God is that he's a God who models what is good 
and then who rescues us from what is evil. God is a God who models what is good and he rescues us from what is evil. And so when you meet someone at the well, when you encounter someone in the throes of life, my hope and my encouragement for everyone in this room is that you would be a voice of hope for them. That you would remind them of the very real good that exists and the very real evil. And then invite them into relationship with a good God who rescues us from the evil that exists in this world. In other words, always point someone toward hope. Always point someone toward mercy. Always point someone toward Jesus. That is my mission. That is your mission. And that is our mission. And church, I pray that we do that. This is not just for knowledge. This is not just for information. It's about being conveyors of hope and truth in this world. You know the difference between right and wrong. That didn't come from nowhere. That came from somewhere. God, put that in your hearts. So use that. Take that. Show people that God is out there and that he cares. And show them a good God. That is our mission, church. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's stand for a final song and we'll close in prayer.